Cloud Unfiltered listeners. Thank you so much for coming back and joining us today. Uh, we're really excited about today's guest. He is an OG in the cloud world. We are talking early pioneer of cloud computing, visionary in the industry, father of OpenStack, built Rackspace cloud business as the GM of cloud computing division, and later he moved to HP where he served as the VP of cloud services. His name is Emil Sayeg. He is now the CEO of Entirety. You are probably familiar with him. Shoot, I probably didn't even need to do this introduction. I could have just said his name, but here we go. I wanted to lay it all out because we're so excited. I mean, you're a big deal, sir. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for hosting me. It's my privilege. <laughs> sure. And as it turns out, weirdly enough, this OG is friends with my other OG, Pete Johnson. Hey there, Allie. Yeah. It, so, Emil, I, I owe you, I feel like, a, a great debt of gratitude for helping me start this cloud journey. I mean, so for those that don't know, Emil and I started working together the summer of 2010. So it was literally 10 years ago. And I remember so vividly the day that we met, HP Cloud Services had just been formed. I was on a team led by Ross Jimenez, who has also been a guest on this podcast. And we were in charge of the developer experience. So that was going to be like the portal and the SDKs and the command lines and so forth. And we had a team get together in the old Houston compact site, which was getting retrofitted. And because they were getting ready to sell off one of the buildings, I think we might have even had the last HP building in that particular room. And they were retrofitting it. And Emil came in and, and dude, you just held court. Like because of all the experience you had at Rackspace, you laid out how the cloud business worked and where it was going. You ended up being right about so many of those things. One of the details of that meeting that always sticks with me, though, is there was not a whiteboard in the room, right? So there was there was a collection of pens and a dry erase eraser in the middle of the in the middle of the table, and you grabbed a pen, and because you didn't have a whiteboard, you started you started drawing out points from memory on the window, and then you you eloquently talked about all these things that you you thought was going to happen and how things work, and at the end of it, you grabbed the dry erase eraser. And they were poster board pens, not dry erase pens. <laughs> so you went to erase what you had, and it didn't work. And we had to call maintenance to come get somebody to wipe it off the window. And that's how you and I met. Absolutely. I can't stop laughing. That's a, that's a great memory. I recall that day vividly. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and... What I appreciated, I mean, you, you gave a very honest account about where the cloud business was and where you thought it would go. And here we are 10 years later, you're still doing the same thing. You wrote this great article that just published uh, today as we're, we're talking about this on July 14th is when we're recording this. There's an article you just wrote on Forbes called The New Cloud Race Booms Amid the COVID-19 Industry Boom. Why don't you talk a, a little bit about what, what people can find in that article and, and what you think you know, the, the current state and where things might be going that, that you that you are articulate in that article. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Pete. Uh, thank you, Ali, for hosting me. It's a real pleasure to uh, to be on your on your show. Yeah. I mean, look, what's going on is that, you know, 15 years later, the cloud is still going strong. The industry dynamics are shifting from just basic infrastructure. Um, the time that uh, Pete and I worked together, it was uh infrastructure as a service that was the thing that was propelling cloud forward. And all the competition was an infrastructure as a service, it was compute, storage, how you manage it, how you scale it. 
so on and so forth. And today, that has become a lot more of a commodity, right? So the infrastructure as a service that is coming from AWS, that is coming from Google, coming from Azure, very much are similar and are very much a commodity. So the competition has moved up in a couple of areas. One is on the the technology front, which is including a lot more technology around infrastructure. So things like AI, things like machine learning, things like adding more value-added services, you know, like monitoring, like patching, so on and so forth. And the other axis is actually on the managed services axis, which is adding a lot more high-touch services on top of the infrastructure. So so the race is evolving. Now the competition is moving in, you know, two different directions, if you will, and moving up the stack. And there's a lot of great things that are happening in cloud with that, because, you know, once you commoditize the basic infrastructure and that's what's going on, now the competition is getting a lot fiercer and technology as well as innovation have, have a role to play now in that versus just massive, massive scale, if you will, right? You mentioned cloud kind of moving up the stack, and I think that's really interesting because to me, in my heart of hearts, and I used to work for MetaCloud, which was a managed private cloud as a service, I still think AWS, Google, and Azure as being really infrastructure as a service. And you're right, it's a commodity. It's gasoline. It's me driving by the 76 station and stopping there because it's convenient, not because it's I have a gas preference. I don't. If it's cheaper, I might make an effort, but probably not. So when I hear you talking about it moving up the stack, I wonder about the differentiation between those platforms. Are they the ones moving it up the stack or is it really other players or additional parts and pieces that are moving it up the stack? Yeah, I mean, frankly, it's it's two things. You know, there, there's differences between them for sure. You know, there's, uh, you know, AWS is uh, frankly, you know, very strong with enterprises, very strong with developers, whereas Microsoft Azure is very strong in those companies and those IT departments, specifically IT departments that have a Microsoft legacy, right? So, you know, where they're operating in the Microsoft ecosystem. So Azure fits that. You know, Google is much more, uh, successful with, uh, I would say, startups, with, with folks that are bringing in new business models, you know, so on and so forth. So there is differentiation between these three giants, but at a, you know, super high level, what you are starting to see is, is the differences are becoming, you know, more and more subtle, if you will. And that's where folks, as businesses are advancing, you're seeing folks using multiple clouds. You're seeing people use Azure and AWS or Azure and Google, depending on the application and also as a way to leverage costs and technology as well as, you know, spread redundancy and have less less dependence on one vendor. So you you are truly, you know, kind of starting to see what you're describing is, you know, essentially using the best of these three cloud players. However, the differentiation is coming both from within the cloud players. They are adding incredible tools, um, very sophisticated tools with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, DevOps, data management, so on and so forth. So these are native tools that they are adding 
that are enhancing the experience and then expanding the use cases for these for these clouds. And so they're seeing also their differentiation as not being compute and storage anymore, but these tools that fit around the compute and storage that will that would propel the experience. And then on the other side, you are seeing managed services providers that are coming in and bolting on their value proposition on top of the tools that these public cloud providers are creating to create differentiation and uh, improve the user experience of, of enterprises and corporate IT that potentially find the interaction with the public cloud tools as too intimidating. You know, so there's a gap there because a lot of the IT departments don't have the expertise. They don't have the, the manpower, the talent, the time, the focus, the budget to you know, go up to speed, uh, get up to speed with the thousands of tools that the public cloud providers have provided. So you know, there's really you know, kind of a bridge the gap kind of a ecosystem that is emerging uh, with the managed service providers that are helping folks adopt cloud and take advantage of all these nifty features that are coming up. Okay, so it's both. So they're providing some and it sounds like other providers are getting involved and providing, creating tools that work on top of these platforms. Exactly. Pete, you look like you had a question. Yeah, would you say, Emil, that it's no longer, IaaS is no longer the end game, but it's rather a means to an end? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just like Ali said, it's, it's gasoline. You know, you may stop at this gas station because you got reward points or because, you know, they have a you know, good coffee inside or, or whatnot, but frankly, it is very similar gasoline. Well, and what strikes me is that I, I think we're even approaching above that. Like, I don't think anybody chooses Amazon because of DynamoDB is that much better than Azure Cosmos, right? Like, for, no, for a managed NoSQL, those are also becoming somewhat commoditized. But you might make a choice, like, let's say in the no-code space, right? You might choose Logic Apps on Azure versus Honeycode on AWS for similar reasons, right? And that's, I mean, that's the ultimate moving up the stack going into that no-code, low-code situation, right? Bingo, yeah, precisely. So as we, as we talk about this differentiation between these platforms and whether there's really a, a lot of that, I think back to your article and it mentioned the possibility, you know, the upside of these guys growing is price wars is a possibility in the future. Like, I, I guess you were... You were trying to explain why it's not all bad that these guys are huge and that they may go ahead and, you know, acquire other companies in the future. And do you really think price wars are a possibility? I haven't heard anything like I remember price wars back in 2013, 14, 15. I don't feel like I've heard any of that in a while. Is it just that I'm not paying attention or are they not doing that as much as they used to? They're not doing that as much. However, I think with the pressures. So here's here's the deal is that there's going to be one of those companies that's going to that's going to start a price war because look the company that is growing the least is going to feel under pressure to to drop prices and start to tweak price to generate demand and we are seeing you know as an example google doing a lot of what amazon did initially which is give a lot of free time on the cloud to startups and whatnot so as soon as the growth that azure and aws are seeing today starts to slow down they're going to start looking at price as a as a as a lever. It just happens in every industry. You know, the PC industry, the server industry. Just you know, as time moves on, and they're looking for for growth, especially if they're if they're not able to add more services that generate more profit for them, that's going to be a lever that they're gonna they're gonna try to tweak. So it can and will happen again. You think? I I I almost I'm almost certain of it. Yep. Do you think it's necessarily price or total cost of ownership, though? Because, for example, 
Like I had a project last summer where I built a serverless application over a six month period where I never had to SSH into a VM. I never wrote a Docker file. So like the, the cost of ownership to me, e even though if I was doing it at scale, which when I was doing it by myself, I wasn't, and I incurred 32 cents of cost while I was developing, <laughs> right? Like at scale, it would cost me more, but my time to market shrinks. So, so does this notion of, of, a, of a price war, well, you, you kind of have to throw in total cost of ownership and, and what time to market gains and things like that you get, don't you? I mean, absolutely. Total cost of ownership is always the deciding factor when it comes to sophisticated buyers. The issue that you're going to have is that if somebody's trying, if somebody starts to gain a lot of market share in a market that the other two players want, there's going to be a warp. And right now, Google is gaining a lot of market share with startups, and they're doing it with giving you know lots of free time and lots of free accounts and so on and so forth. There's going to be a time where that hurts both Azure and AWS, and they're probably going to have to react somehow. So I'm not saying that it's going to be in the immediate future, but it's going to be a matter of time before that phenomenon starts to happen. Right now, the market is growing; everybody's doing great. A rising tide, you know, kind of you know floats uh, uh, floats all boats. But but there's going to be time where things start to kind of get tight, and that's what they're going to revert to. Do you have any concerns with Google remaining the third viable alternative, given their history of exiting markets quickly with things like Google Reader and Google Plus, and that document that got leaked in December, that if they weren't top two, they might bail from the, the cloud industry? Like, is that is that just all smoke that doesn't mean anything, or is there no. some fire there? There's, there's surely fire for sure. I mean, Google has a history of doing that, but you know, there's always, um, Ali, uh, there's always other competitors that will step sure. in and fill in that gap. But, you know, there's always that concern with, with Google as well as, you know, with our prior employer, right? HP that, that exited several markets that were on the verge of, of breaking. Well, that's what I was going to ask when, or when you started talking about the big three, so say Google drops out, is there a four that could slide into that slot? Who's the who's the leading contender that isn't part of the big three right now? Potentially, you know, Ali, there's there's some domestic players as well that are more on the smaller side, you know, maybe unknown side, but uh, but you know, could could potentially could oh. potentially uh, uh, step in into the IS game. When you were talking about these companies, you were talking about how um, they're growing right now. I think they'd be growing whether we had the COVID-19 boom or not, but obviously this has, I'm, I'm sure this has increased their business tremendously. It's put all of us online a lot more than we used to be for more hours in a day. And I'm sure it's required incredible capacity. Do you think they've had to scramble or do you think these guys already had this baked in? Did they already have this capacity sitting around in the, in the mega data centers that they run? You know, that's an interesting question, though what you are seeing is a a continuation and acceleration of their, you know, them buying footprint uh, all over the place. You know, did they have it baked in? You know, we, we've seen a few hiccups here and there, but nothing major, knock on wood, right? I mean, we've seen a few hiccups here and there with some tools and so on and so forth, but it seems like, you know, it's scaled pretty well. And right now, just based on their buying patterns of data centers and expansion and so on and so forth, it seems like they're, you know, buying ahead of it, right? And then they're, they're trying to kind of lean into this demand versus, uh, versus hold back. So, uh, 
you know, knock on wood, I think they've been able to deal with it, you know, very well. And uh, they've they've expanded, you know, pretty smartly. We haven't heard of any major outages, whatnot. There has been some networking hiccups here and there where, you know, there's been fiber fiber uh, fiber lines that were cut in certain places. And then, you know, sometimes because of the certain conditions in those metro areas, crews weren't able to get there. But uh, but overall, I would say the scaling has been, you know, pretty, um, pretty uneventful and has done pretty well. And if, if only there were a company that could help you with your networking woes. <laughs> like I, right? Right. Exactly. I can't think of one off the top of my head. <laughs> well, so we've been talking a lot about sort of differentiation higher up the stack. How, how does that change the landscape for a managed service business like what you do there at entirety, given that you're not necessarily dealing with network storage and compute anymore, but maybe now you're dealing with pub sub, object storage, queues, these higher level constructs. How does that change that business for you? Yeah, so so, so I wouldn't say we're not we're no longer dealing with actual infrastructure. I mean we still we still have multiple data centers in the United States and overseas. And so we have data centers all over, all around the world, but also what is going on is that we're transforming the company and transforming ourselves essentially to be able to handle a multi-cloud and a hybrid environment. So our teams are no longer just focused on you know, managing the hardware that we control inside of our data centers, but now are adept at managing stuff in, in the public cloud, on Azure, AWS, Google. They're getting their shirts up. And also our team now is not just skilled in infrastructure as a service. Yes, we have that. That's our legacy. But, you know, they're getting um, experience with DevOps tools. They're getting experience with security tools. They're getting experience with AI, machine learning. They're getting their certs in those areas so they can help customers migrate into these new constructs versus just kind of being focused on infrastructure as a service. So, you know, there's a transformation that's going on in the way that, you know, we train our teams, our employees, the way that we present ourselves to our customers, and frankly, in the service that we offer to our customers. You know, whereas that service used to be on top of services that we offered in our data centers now, that service spans whether it sits in our data center or whether it sits in the public cloud or even on-prem at the customer. It doesn't matter. You know, that service layer all spans, spans all these constructs. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That now there's these silos of implementations and your service offerings span all of them is the way that I would think of that. Exactly. Exactly. Great. Great. So we've been talking a lot about uh, the things that you mentioned in the article because that was so interesting to me and, and, and how our industry is working really hard to respond to the increased capacity all of a sudden that's required to run our economy. But let's shift a little bit. You, you started talking about some of the future things in the cloud. You've talked about how companies are moving up the stack to offer more sophisticated services than just basic infrastructure on demand. But what do you see as far as cloud going forward? I mean, it's so different than it was. Maybe you predicted a lot of this, but I, <laughs> I didn't see our conversations changing so much that almost all of our episodes, not almost all of them, but a lot of them are about Kubernetes. You know, they are about AI. They're about security. The word cloud hardly even means what it originally meant to me anymore. You know, it's it means so many more things. So what does the future look like? If you could talk a little bit about some of the new technologies coming our way about hybrid cloud, multi-cloud, that would be great. Yeah. So look, 
what's going on right now is we have a huge threat to the the cloud usage out there. We have applications that are put on the cloud that are mission critical. We have applications that are spread across multiple clouds. Every IT infrastructure is using, almost every IT infrastructure is using multiple constructs, whether it's public cloud, private cloud, uh, whether it's Azure, AWS. So stitching it all together is, is becoming more and more of a challenge. That's number one, but stitching it together and keeping it secure is a huge issue out there right now. We all moved to a work from home environment very quickly with COVID. Now certain states are you know, figuring out how to get back. Certain companies are figuring out how to get back, planning for that, how that hybrid model is going to work out. But what you have is that you have a huge threat vector that is taking advantage of that movement. Because remember, all these threat actors, all these nefarious actors out there, they like to move in whenever there's uncertainty, whenever there's, you know, people's are focused on something else. People's focus is on, on moving back, on um, restarting the economy, on uh, repatriating employees, you know, whatever it is. And right now we are seeing, we just did an operations review internally, and we are seeing a huge spike of very sophisticated threats being being pushed into various enterprises. And you know, some of them are ransomware, some of them are very sophisticated ransomware, and, and some of them are are pure, you know, data collection so that they can infiltrate at a later time or expose the data. So, you know, we're we're in a pretty dangerous period where uh, people are still operating under the premise of, well, look, you know, all my, you know, all my applications are in my domain. Yeah, sure, I have some stuff, you know, in the public cloud. But now, I even have all my employees outside of, you know, the work environment. And whereas that's not a big deal, maybe perhaps for startups or companies that are um, avant-garde. But I would say for the majority of corporate America, that is not something that they plan for, and uh, that is not something that really has gone into the planning when it comes to security. So I would say that's going to be the next frontier is how do you secure all of that stuff when it's not all under your domain, where you're not controlling all of it, where the threats are, you know, could come in from somebody's home, somebody's phone, into your network, so on and so forth. First off, I think you're 100% right about the fact that right now we're vulnerable and it's because we're in a transition. We're trying to, we're moving from one way of the way we worked and lived to another, whether it's temporary or permanent, we're in a transition. I remember some philosophy teacher told me back in college that transitions are where great losses and gains are, are made. And, and I have found that is true. The number of things you let move through the crack when you move to, to a new house, right? The amount of money you spend on things you wouldn't spend otherwise when you're transitioning between jobs. It is the truth. And we as a world are going through that. So dead on. My question for you is, do you think that most companies know? Are they aware of these attacks yet? Or is are these the kind of things that would be security breaches that are quiet and they're doing damage for a while before anybody knows? I think by the frequency of the of the what the press is reporting in terms of breaches, you know that they're not aware. I mean, they're not aware. They're frankly, and I say this, you know, very tactfully, but, you know, a lot of CIOs are asleep at the wheel and in denial that this is happening in their environments. And I just, you know, want to be very careful when I say this. I don't want to generalize, but I would say there's a large 
number of CIOs that are completely in denial that this is actually happening. And, um, you know, the way that we, what we see for those networks that are under our management from a security standpoint, a lot of those threats are stopped at the door. A lot of those threats are stopped through a combination of AI, machine learning, and people. It's all these three angles working together, right? So we have AI installed, we have, you know, we're learning from the threats, but then we also have people that are looking at this and saying, well, does this make sense or not? When it comes to a zero day threat, it's hard for machine learning and AI to, you know, actually catch it and, and, and mitigate it. So this is where it gets escalated to a human being that kind of looks at it as like, okay, yeah, no, this is fine. Or no, 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 no. This looks like it's coming from the United States, but it's really coming from North Korea. And this, this threat signature is a real threat. Um, you know, we've never seen it before. Let's just stop it at the door, right? And, um, and it's getting a lot, very sophisticated. And I would tell you, most of corporate America is not equipped to even detect and know what is going on in their networks when it comes to security, especially now that we're all working from home. That is scary. So there may be an unpleasant day of reckoning coming. The thing I love about that, Emil, is... You know, if if you go back 20 years, 25 years, right, like it used to be all the applications and all the users were inside the corporate network. So you could have this moat approach to network security, right? You had this firewall and it was a physical firewall and everything was contained within it. And then we got the web and there were reasons why people needed to get outside that firewall. Well, we'll just put it in HTTP proxy and that serves the purpose. Well, over the last 20 years, the applications have moved out of that walled garden into the public cloud. The users have moved outside of that public garden, both in terms of their bring your own device and in terms of now their laptops from home. And now all of a sudden there is no front door, there's 10,000 front doors. And how do you, how do you guard against all that stuff? And that's why, that's why they need help from managed service providers is like you said, like the, the, the smaller companies aren't a threat because they don't have enough money to get threatened with anyway. And the bigger companies have all the money, but then they can throw, you know, they've got big enough revenues. They can throw enough, they can throw enough security dollars at that to solve the problem. But there's this huge chunk of people in the middle that, you know, potentially have enough revenue to be threatened, but don't have enough revenue to throw a bunch of security dollars at it. And those are the folks that need the help in this, you know, this new world of having to guard a thousand doors at a time. Exactly. Mid-market enterprise. Yeah. I mean, and then one more thing is that it's IT is now operating from home as well. Like they're yeah. not even in the wall gardener, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like right. IT, I mean, they cannot like physically, if they want to get to a server, they cannot get to it. You know, they have to VPN tunnel in, you know, so on and so forth to get to their, it, it is a different world. It's a very different world and it's going to continue with us. And I got to tell you, whereas we weathered the storm you know, we took the first hit. The second hit is where it's dangerous because you have to remember that these mid-market companies, they've, they've had to endure a lot of economic losses sure. due to the slowdown in the economy. They come back and they get a security breach on top of it. That's going to break their backs. And that's where people need to be super careful. You know, I mean, really, it is a PSA. Uh, public service announcement is just, you know, be super careful because a security breach, after you're trying to bring you know, your company to get up on its feet can break your back permanently because it is, you know, start, stop. And then now that you bring back all your workforce, they can't 
they can't do anything because you know you've had a security breach, right, or or whatnot, and it could be crippling. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I think the security issue was huge, actually. That I'm I'm really glad you brought this up because I didn't see this angle coming, and it's super interesting and so relevant to what we're all going through now, being in different work environments. I know I read an article where, uh, or I saw a Twitter post where a gal who worked at NASA was talking about how NASA is trying to figure out how to keep cats from accidentally taking command of uh, spaceships. Did you see that? Yeah, because now we work at home and people have cats. And the actual, the same way we have IT guys trying to run IT from outside the business, NASA has engineers who, you know, are operating their spacecraft from home instead of from an office that would be presumably cat-free. But looking forward, so the security issue was super interesting. You also mentioned, though, the idea of trying to, okay, you're, you've got a multi-cloud going. So you, you're, you're using all, maybe you're using two public providers, maybe you're using three, and you've probably got a private cloud, too. And the idea of melding those together and, and operating those together in a more seamless way. Do you see any bright spots on the horizon as far as tools that will allow people to do that? Um, I mean, absolutely. Look, you know, whenever you whenever we talk about multi-cloud, we would be we also need to talk about how the network also becomes differentiation, right? A, a big part of differentiation because, you know, tying all this stuff together in a seamless manner, there's a lot of pressure now on the network to keep all these different infrastructures working together and, you know, between software-defined networking as a technology and then, you know, taking, frankly, Kubernetes to the, to the, to the next step, right, and seeing how, how the network can facilitate all of that is, I think, a big part of the, the future of, of multi-cloud. It's almost like you work for Cisco, Emil. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's a very bright future for, for the cloud industry and all the industries that serve it, whether it's the networking, whether it's software, whether it's folks that are developing on it, you know, for AI and machine learning. So it's a, you know, the future is bright and there's going to be tons of money to be made outside of just the big three companies. And um, I think that's the challenge for all of us is to kind of figure out how to leverage this, you know, massive demand that's out there especially after uh, this COVID crisis, you know, settles down and things kind of go back to uh, uh, to a normal state because there's going to be, you know, new realities that are going to set in just like what we talked about with, with IT departments that are trying to figure out how do we manage their, uh, how do they manage their IT assets in this new environment. So, uh, you know, I do think the future is bright and I'm super excited and very thankful to be part of this show. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been cool to tap your wisdom and, and hear what your thoughts are. You definitely um, brought up some issues I know I hadn't been thinking about. Maybe Pete had in his wisdom, but I had not. So I, I thank you for making us aware of that stuff. And I hope you'll come back to join us in the future. Anytime. Thank you so much. And thank you to your listeners. Bye-bye. Bye, Pete. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye, -bye.